He dropped his hand. I'm not sure he's capable of caring for anyone now, not in any real way. He was never good at changing, bending. He broke instead, and he took all of us with him. He fell silent, reverberating pain, and I understood then that unlike Sia, Matting still loved Shiny, or whoever Shiny had once been. My mind fought against the name that whispered in my heart. I had found his hand and laced our fingers together. Matting glanced down at them, then up at me, and smiled. There was such sorrow in his eyes that I leaned over and kissed him. He sighed through it, resting his forehead against mine when we parted. I don't want to talk about him anymore, he said. All right, I said. What shall we talk about instead? Though I thought I knew. Stay with me, he whispered. I wasn't the one who left. I tried for lightness and failed utterly. He closed his eyes. It was different before. Now I realize I'm going to lose you either way. You'll leave town, or you'll grow old and die. But if you stay, I'll have you longer. He fumbled for my other hand. Not as good at doing things without his eyes as I was. I need you, Ori. I licked my lips. I don't want to endanger you, Mad. And if I stay... Every morsel of food I ate, every scrap of clothing I wore, would come from him. Could I bear that? I had traveled across the continent, left my mother and my people, scrabbled and struggled to live as I pleased. If I stayed in shadow, with the order hunting me and murder dogging my steps, would I even be able to leave Madding's house? Freedom alone or imprisonment with the man I loved. Two horrible choices. And he knew it. I felt him tremble, and that was almost enough. Please, he whispered. Almost, I gave in. Let me think, I said. I have to... I can't think, Mad. His eyes opened. Because he was so near touching me, I could feel the hope fade in him. When he drew back, letting go of my hand... I knew he had begun to draw back his heart as well, stealing it against my rejection. All right, he said. Take as long as you like. If he had gotten angry, it would have been so much easier. I started to speak, but he had turned away. What was there to say anyhow? Nothing that would heal the pain I'd just caused him. Only time could do that. So I sighed and got up and headed upstairs. Matting's house was huge. The second floor, where his room was located, was also where he and his siblings worked, pricking themselves to produce tiny vials of their blood for sale to mortals. He had grown wealthy from this and from his other lines of business. There were many skills godlings possessed that mortals were willing to pay a premium for. But he was still a godling, and when his business had grown, he hadn't considered opening an office. He'd simply made his house bigger and invited all his underlings to come live with him. Most of them had taken him up on the offer. The third floor held the rooms of those godlings who liked having a bed, a few scriveners who'd slipped the order's leash, and a handful of mortals with other useful talents. Record-keeping, glass-blowing, sales. The next floor up was the roof, which was what I sought. I found two godlings lounging at the bottom of the roof stairs when I came up from below. Matting's patch-skinned male lieutenant guard 
and a coolly handsome creature who'd taken the form of a middle-aged kinman. The latter, whose gaze held wisdom and disinterest in equal measure, did not acknowledge my presence. The former winked at me and shifted closer to his sibling to let me pass. Up for a breath of night air? he asked. I nodded. I can feel the city best up there. Saying goodbye? His eyes were too sharp, reading my face like a sigil. I mustered a weak smile in response, because I did not trust myself to keep my composure if I spoke. His expression softened with pity. It'd be a shame to see you go. I've caused him enough trouble. He doesn't mind. I know, but at this rate, I'll end up owing him my soul, or worse. He doesn't keep an account for you, Ori. It was the first time he'd used my name. I shouldn't have been surprised. He'd been with Matting for longer than I had. Perhaps they'd even come to the mortal world together. Two eternal bachelors seeking excitement amid the grit and glory of the city. The idea made me smile. He noticed and smiled himself. You have no idea how much he cares for you. I had seen Mad's eyes when he asked me to stay. I do know, I whispered, and then had to take a deep breath. I'll see you later. Uh, I paused. All this time, I had never asked his name. My cheeks grew warm with shame. He looked amused. Paitya. My partner, the woman, is Keter. But don't tell her I told you. I nodded, resisting the urge to glance at the older-looking godling. Some godlings were like Paitya and Madding and Lil, not caring whether mortals accorded them any particular reverence. Others, I had learned, regarded us as very much inferior beings. Either way, the older one already looked annoyed that I'd interrupted their relaxation. Best to leave him be. You'll have company, Paitya said, as I moved past him. I almost stopped there, realizing who he meant. But that was fitting, I decided, considering the churn of misery inside myself. I had been raised as a devouty tempin, though I'd lapsed in the years since, and my heart had never really been in it anyhow. Yet I still prayed to him when I felt the need. I was definitely feeling the need now. So I proceeded up the steps, wrestled the heavy metal lever open, and stepped out onto the roof. As the metallic echoes of the door faded, I heard breathing to one side, low to the ground. He was sitting down somewhere, probably against one of the wide struts of the cistern that dominated the rooftop space. I could not feel his gaze, but he must have heard me come onto the roof. Silence fell. Standing there, knowing who he was, I expected to feel different. I should have been reverent, nervous, awed maybe. Yet my mind could not reconcile the two concepts, the bright lord of order and the man I'd found in a muck bin, Etempus and Shiny, him and him. They did not feel at all the same in my heart. And I could think of only one question out of the thousands that I should have asked. All that time you lived with me and never spoke, I said. Why? At first I thought he wouldn't answer, but at last I heard a faint shift in the gravel that covered the rooftop and felt the solidity of his gaze settle on me. You are irrelevant, he said. Just another mortal. I was growing used to him, I realized bitterly. That had hurt far less than I'd expected. Shaking my head, I went over to another of the cistern struts. 
felt about to make sure there were no puddles or debris in the way, and sat down. There was no true silence up on the roof. The midnight air was thick with the sounds of the city. Yet I found myself at peace anyhow. Shiny's presence, my anger at him, at least kept me from thinking about matting or dead order keepers or the end of the life I'd built for myself in shadow. So in his own obnoxious way, my God comforted me. What the hells are you doing up here anyhow? I asked. I could not muster the wherewithal to show him any greater respect. Praying to yourself? There's a new moon tonight. So? He did not reply and I did not care. I turned my face toward the distant, barely there shimmers of the world tree's canopy and pretended they were the stars I'd heard others talk about all my life. Sometimes, amid the ripples and eddies of the leafy sea, I would see a brighter flash now and again. Probably in early bloom. The tree would be flowering soon. There were people in the city who made a year's living from the dangerous work of climbing the tree's lower branches and snipping off its silvery, hand-wide blossoms for sale to the wealthy. All that happens in darkness he sees and hears, Shiny said abruptly. I wished he would stop talking again. On a moonless night, he will hear me, even if he chooses not to answer. Who? Nahadoth. I forgot my anger at Shiny and my sorrow over Matting and my guilt about the Order Keepers. I forgot everything but that name, Nahadoth. We have never forgotten his name. These days, our world has two great continents, but once there were three, High North, Sinem, and the Maroland. Marrow was the smallest of the three, but was also the most magnificent, with trees that stretched a thousand feet into the air, flowers and birds found nowhere else, and waterfalls so huge that it was said you could feel their spray on the other side of the world. The hundred clans of my people, just called Marrow then, not Moroni, were plentiful and powerful. In the aftermath of the gods' war, those who had honored Brighty Tempest above other gods were shown favor. That included the Amun, a now-extinct people called the Ginich, and us. The Amun were ruled by the Aramari family. Their home was Sinem, but they built their stronghold in our land, at our invitation. We were smarter than the Ginich, but we paid a price for our savvy politicking. There was a rebellion of some sort. A great army marched across the Maroland, intent upon overthrowing the Aramari. Stupid, I know. But such things happened in those days. It would have been just another massacre, just another footnote in history, if one of the Aramari's weapons hadn't gotten loose. He was the Night Lord, brother and eternal enemy of Brighty Tempest. Hobbled, diminished, but still unimaginably powerful, he punched a hole in the earth, causing earthquakes and tsunamis that tore the Maroland apart. The whole continent sank into the sea, and nearly all its people died. The few Marrow who survived settled on a tiny peninsula of the Sinem continent, granted to them by the Aramari in condolence for our loss. We began to call ourselves Morona, which meant those who weep for Marrow, in the common language we once spoke. We named our daughters for sorrow and our sons for rage. We debated whether there was any point in trying to rebuild our race. We thanked Tempest for saving even the handful of us who remained, 
and we hated the Aramary for making that prayer necessary. And though the rest of the world all but forgot him outside of heretic cults and tales to frighten children, we remember the name of our destroyer, Nahadoth. I have been attempting, said Shiny, to express my remorse to him. That pulled me from one kind of shock into another. What? Shiny got up. I heard him walk a few steps, perhaps over to the low wall that marked the edge of the rooftop. His voice, when he spoke, was diluted by wind and the late-night sounds of the city. But it came to me clearly enough. His diction was precise, unaccented, perfectly pitched. He spoke like a noble man trained to give speeches. You wanted to know what I had done to be punished with mortality, he said. You asked that of Sia. I pulled my thoughts from their endless litany of Nahadoth, Nahadoth, Nahadoth. Well, yes. My sister, he said. I killed her. I frowned. Of course he had. Enifa, the goddess of earth and life, had conspired against Etempis with her brother, the night lord Nahadoth. Etempis had slain her for treachery and had given Nahadoth to the Aramari as a slave. It was a famous story. Unless... I licked my lips. Did she... do something to provoke you? The wind shifted for a moment. His voice drifted to me and away, then back again, sing-song and soft. She took him from me. She... I stopped. I did not want to understand. Obviously, Etempis had been involved with Enifa at some point before their falling out. The existence of the godlings was proof enough of that. But Nahadoth was the monster in the dark, the enemy of all that was good in the world. I didn't want to think of him as the Bright Lord's brother, much less... But I had spent too much time among godlings. I had seen that they lusted and raged like mortals, hurt like mortals, misunderstood and nursed petty grudges, and killed each other over love like mortals. I got to my feet, trembling. You're saying you started the God's War, I said. You're saying the Night Lord was your lover, that you love him still. You're saying he's free now and he's the one who did this to you? Yes, said Shiny. Then, to my surprise, he let out a little laugh, so laden with bitterness that his voice wavered unsteadily for an instant. That's precisely what I'm saying. My hands tightened on my stick until it hurt my palms. I sank back to a crouch, planting the stick in the gravel to balance myself, pressing my forehead against the smooth old wood. I don't believe you, I whispered. I could not believe him. I could not be that wrong about the world, the gods, everything. The entire human race could not be that wrong. Could we? I heard the gravel shift under Shiny's feet as he turned to me. Do you love Matting? he asked. It was such an unexpected question, so nonsensical in the context of our discussion that it took me several seconds to make my mouth work. Yes, dear gods, of course I do. Why are you asking me that now? More gravel, chuffing rhythmically as he came over to me. His warm hands took hold of mine where they gripped the stick. I was so surprised by this that I let him pry me loose and pull me up to stand. He did nothing then, for several moments. 
just looked at me. I became aware belatedly that I wore nothing but a silk robe. The winter had been mild this year, and spring was coming early, but the night had begun to turn cold. Goosebumps prickled my skin, and my nipples tinted the silk. I had worn as little in my own house, or less. Nudity meant nothing to me as titillation, and Shiny had never shown the slightest interest. Now, however, I was very aware of his gaze, and it bothered me. I had never experienced this particular flavor of discomfort with him before. He leaned closer, his hands sliding up to my arms. His hands were very warm, almost comforting. I didn't know what he meant to do until his lips brushed mine. Startled, I tried to pull away, and his hands tightened sharply. Not enough to hurt, but it was a warning. I froze. He drew near again and kissed me. I didn't know what to think. But as his mouth coaxed mine open with a skill I had never imagined he possessed, and as his tongue flickered at my lips, I could not help relaxing against him. If he had forced the kiss, I would have hated it. I would have fought. Instead, he was gentle, unnaturally too perfectly gentle. His mouth tasted of nothing, which was strange and somehow emphasized his inhumanity. It was not like kissing matting. There was no flavor of Shiny's inner self. But when his tongue touched my own, I jumped a little, because it felt good. I had not expected that. His hand slid down to my waist, then my hips pulling me closer. I breathed his peculiar hot spice smell, the heat and strength of his body. It was wholly different from matting, disturbing, interesting. His teeth grazed my lower lip and I shivered, this time not wholly in fear. He had not closed his eyes. I could feel them watching me, evaluating me, cold despite the heat of his mouth. When he pulled back, he drew in a breath, let it out slowly, said still in a terrible soft voice, You don't love matting. I stiffened. Even now you want me. There was such contempt in his voice. Each word dripped with venom. I had never before heard such emotion from him, and all of it hate. His power intrigues you the prestige of having a god for a lover. Perhaps you're even devoted to him in your small way, though I doubt that, since it seems any god will do. He let out a small sigh. I know well the dangers of trusting your kind. I warned my children, kept them away while I could, but Madding is stubborn. I mourn the pain it will cause him when he finally realizes just how unworthy of his love you are. I stood there, shocked to numbness, believing him for a long, horrifying moment. Shiny had been, still was, diminished or not, the god I had revered all my life. Of course he was right. Had I not hesitated at Madding's offer? My god had judged me and found me wanting, and it hurt. Then sense reasserted itself, and with it came pure fury. I was still backed against the cistern strut, which gave me perfect leverage as I planted my hands on Shiny's chest and shoved him back with all my strength. He stumbled back, making a sound of surprise. I followed, all my fear and confusion forgotten amid red-hot rage. 
That's your proof? My hands found his chest and I shoved him again, throwing all my weight into it, just for the satisfaction of hearing him grunt as I did so. That's what makes you think I don't love Mad? You're a damned good kisser, Shiny, but do you honestly think you hold a candle to Madding in my heart? I laughed, my own voice echoing harshly in my ears. My gods, he was right. You really don't know anything about love. I turned, muttering to myself, and began making my way back to the roof door. Wait, Shiny said. I ignored him, sweeping my stick in a tight, angry arc ahead of me. His hand caught my arm again, and this time I tried to shake him off, cursing. Wait, he said, not letting go. He turned away from me, barely noticing my rage. Someone's here. What are you? But I heard it too now and froze. Footsteps, chuffing on the rooftop gravel beside the door hatch. Ori Shoth? The voice was male, cool, and dark like the late winter night. Familiar, though I could not place it. Yes, I said, wondering if this was some customer of Madding's and what he was doing on the roof if that was the case. And how did he know my name? Maybe he'd overheard some of Madding's people gossiping. Were you looking for me? Yes, though I had hoped you'd be alone. Shiny shifted suddenly, moving in front of me, and I found myself trying to hear the man through his rather intimidating bulk. I opened my mouth to shout at him, too angry for politeness or respect, and then I stopped. It was faint. I had to squint. But Shiny had begun to glow. Ori, he said, calm as always, go into the house. Fear stopped anything else I might have said. He, he's between me and the door. I will remove him. I wouldn't advise that, said the man unruffled. You aren't a godling. Shiny sighed, and under other circumstances, I would have been amused by his annoyance. No, he snapped, I'm not. And before I could speak again, he was gone, the space in front of me cold in his absence. There was a glimmer of magic, something occluded by the hazy shimmer of Shiny's body. Then the flurry of movement, cloth tearing, the struggle of flesh against flesh, a spray of wetness across my face, making me flinch. And then, silence. I held still for a moment, my own breath loud and fast in my ears as I strained to hear the sound that I knew and feared would come. Bodies, hitting the cobblestones of the street three stories below. But there was only that terrible silence. My nerves snapped. I ran to the roof door, clawed it open, and flung myself into the house, screaming. 6. A window opens. Chalk on concrete. There are things he told me about himself. Not all of it, of course. Some things I heard from other gods or remember from old stories of my childhood. But mostly he just told me. It was not his nature to lie. In the time of the three, things were very different. There were many temples, but few holy texts, and no persecution of those with differing beliefs. Mortals loved whatever gods they wished, often several at once, and it was not called heresy. If there were disputes about a particular bit of lore or magic, it was simple enough to call on a local godling and ask about it. 
No point in getting possessive about one god or another when there were plenty to go around. It was during this time that the first demons were born, offspring of mortal humans and immortal gods, neither one nor the other, possessing the greatest gifts of both. One of those gifts was mortality, a strange thing to call a gift, by my thinking, but people back then thought differently. Anyhow, all the demons possessed it. But consider what this means. All the demons died. Doesn't make sense, does it? Children rarely take after just one of their parents. Shouldn't a few of the demons have inherited immortality? They certainly got the magic in plenty, so much that they passed it on to us when they mated with us. Scrivening and bone bending and prophecy and shadow sending, all of this came to mortal kind through the demons. But even when the demons took godly lovers and had children with them, those children grew old and died too. For us, the divine inheritance was a blessing. For the gods, one drop of mortal blood doomed their offspring to death. Apparently, no one realized what this meant for a very long time. I scrambled downstairs much faster than I should have, given that I'd never gotten around to memorizing matting stairs. Behind me trailed Paitya, the middle-aged godling, Keter, who had come out of nowhere at my shout and was visible for once, and Matting. As we reached the room of pools, two more people joined us. A tall mortal woman, who shone with nearly as many god words as Previt Ramarin, and a sleek racing dog, who glowed white in my sight. As I reached the house's front door, I heard others call upstairs. I'd woken the whole house. I might have felt bad if my thoughts had not been filled with that awful silence. Ori. Hands caught me before I got three steps out the door. I fought them. A blur of blue resolved into matting. You shouldn't leave the house, damn it. I have to. I twisted to get around matting. He... He who, Ori? Matting abruptly went still. Why is there blood on your face? That stopped my panic though the hand that I lifted to my face shook badly. Wetness had splattered my face up on the roof. I'd forgotten. Boss? Paitya had crouched to peer at something on the ground. I could not see what, but the grim expression on his face was unmistakable. There's a lot more blood here. Matting turned to look, and his eyes widened. He turned back to me, frowning. What happened? Where were you? Up on the roof? Suddenly his frown deepened. Did father do something to you? So help me. Keter, who'd been scanning the street for danger, looked at us both sharply. You told her? Matting ignored her, though I caught his wince of consternation. He turned me from one side to the other, checking for injuries. I'm fine, I said, holding my stick to my chest as I grew calmer. I'm fine. But yes, I was on the roof with... with Shiny... There was someone, a man, I couldn't see him. He must have been mortal. He knew my name, said he'd been looking for me. Paitya cursed and stood up, narrowing his eyes as he scanned the area. Since when do order keepers come by way of the damned roof? They usually have enough sense not to piss us off. Maddie muttered something in God's language. It curled around and spiked. A curse. What happened? Shiny, I said. He fought with the man. There was magic. I clutched at Matting's arms, my fingers tightening on the cloth of his shirt. Matt, 
The man hit him with magic somehow. I think that's what caused the blood. I think Shiny grabbed him and pulled him off the roof, but I didn't hear them hit the ground. Matting had already begun gesturing at his companions, directing them to search around the house and nearby streets. Keeter stayed nearby, as did Paitya. Matting had no real need of bodyguards, but I did, and he had probably directed one of them to spirit me away if it came down to any sort of fight. I'm going to raise that white hall to the ground, he snarled, his human shape flickering blue as he pushed me back toward the front door. If they've dared to attack my house, my people. He wasn't after Shiny, I murmured, realizing it belatedly. I stopped, clutching Matting's arm to get his attention. Mad, that man wasn't after Shiny at all. If he was an order keeper, he would have wanted Shiny, wouldn't he? They know he killed the ones in South Root. The more I thought about it, the more certain I became. I don't think that man was an order keeper at all. I didn't mistake the swift, startled look that crossed Matting's face. He exchanged a glance with Keeter, who looked equally alarmed. Keeter then turned to look at one of the mortals, the Scrivener. She nodded and knelt, taking a pad of paper out of her jacket and uncapping a thin ink brush. I'll go see too, said the middle-aged godling, vanishing. Matting pulled me against him, holding me firm with one arm and keeping the other free in case of trouble. I tried to feel safe there, in the arms of one god and protected by half a dozen others, but all my nerves were a jangle, and the panic would not fade. I could not push aside the feeling that something was wrong, very wrong, that someone was watching, that something was going to happen. I felt it with every ounce of intuition that I possessed. There's no body, said Paitya, coming over to us. Beyond him, I could see other godlings winking in and out of sight about the street, on nearby windowsills, on the edge of a roof. Enough blood that there should be, but nothing. Not even, er, uh, parts. Is it? I had to struggle to be heard, half muffled against Matting's shoulder. It is. Paitya glanced back at the racing dog, who was sniffing at the spot now. The dog looked up and nodded in solemn confirmation. No doubt about it. The blood just splattered about. It fell from above. But he didn't land here. Matting muttered something in his own tongue, then switched to Cinemite so I would understand. There must have been a weapon, or magic, as you said. He looked down at me, scowling in irritation. He's powerless now. He must have known he couldn't take a Scrivener, if that's what the man was. On the roof of a house full of godlings, why didn't he just call for help? Stubborn bastard. I closed my eyes and leaned against Matting, suddenly weary. I could have called for help, too, I realized belatedly, though I'd been too frightened to think of doing so. Shiny, however, hadn't been afraid at all. He hadn't wanted help. He'd done it again, charged into a dangerous situation, spent his life like currency, all so he could have a taste of his old power. It had been for my benefit this time, but did that really make it better? Godlings respected life, including their own. They were just as immortal, but they at least tried to defend themselves or evade blows when attacked. When they fought, they tried not to kill, while Shiny slaughtered even his own kin. 
The Night Lord should have just killed him, I said, filled with sudden bitterness. Matting raised his eyebrows in surprise, but I shook my head. There's something wrong with him, Matt. I always suspected it, but tonight... I remembered the little break in Shiny's voice when he'd admitted his role in the God's War. Just an instant of instability, a crack in the bedrock of his stoicism. But it went deeper than that, didn't it? His carelessness with his flesh. How had he ended up dead in my muckbin all those months ago? That vicious kiss he'd given me? His even more vicious words afterward, blaming me for all the duplicity of the human race. He was, or had been, the god of order, the living embodiment of stability, peace, and rationality. The man he had become, here in the mortal realm, didn't make sense. Shiny did not feel like Etempus because Shiny wasn't Etempus, and no part of my proper marrow upbringing would let me accept him as such. Matting sighed. Nahadoth wanted to kill him, Ori. A lot of my siblings did, too, after what he'd done. But the three created this universe. If any one of them dies, it all ends. So he was sent here, where he can do the least damage and maybe... He paused, and again I heard that hint of longing in his voice, hope not quite stifled. Maybe somehow he can... Get better. See the error of his ways. I don't know. He said he was trying to apologize up on the roof. To... To... I shuddered. We did not forget his name, but we didn't say it either. Not if we could help it. The Night Lord. Matting blinked in surprise. Did he? That's more than I'd ever thought he'd do. He sobered. But I doubt that will do any good. He killed my mother, Ori. Murdered her with poison, mutilated her body. Then spent the next few millennia killing or imprisoning any of us who dared to protest. It takes a little more than an apology to atone for that. I reached up to Matting's face, reading his expression with my fingers. This helped me catch what I had missed. You're still angry about it. His brow furrowed. Of course I am. I loved her. He sighed heavily, leaning down to press his forehead against mine. I loved him too, once. I cupped his face in my hands, wishing I knew how to comfort him. This was family business, though, between father and son. It was Shiny's problem to solve if we ever found him. There was one thing I could do, though. I'll stay, I said. He started, pulling back to stare at me. Of course he knew what I meant. After a long moment, he said, Are you sure? I almost laughed. I was shaky inside, not just from leftover panic. No, but I don't think I ever will be. I just... I know what's most important to me. I did laugh then, as I realized that Shiny had helped me decide, with that horrid kiss and the challenge in his words, I did too love Matting and I wanted to be with him, even though it meant the end of the life I'd worked so hard to build and the end of my independence. Love meant compromise, after all, something I suspected Shiny did not understand. Matting's face was solemn as he nodded, accepting my decision. I liked that he did not smile. 
I think he knew what the decision cost me. Instead, after a moment, he sighed and glanced at Keeter, who had carefully paid more attention to the street than to us for the past few minutes. I'm calling everyone in, he said. I don't like this. No mere Scrivener should be able to hide from us. He glanced back in the direction of the splashes of blood. And I can't sense father anywhere. I especially don't like that. Nor can I, said Keeter. There are some of us with the power to hide him, but why would they? Unless... She glanced at me, assessing and dismissing in a single sweep of her eyes. You think this has something to do with Rola? Your mortal there did find the body. But what's that got to do with anything? I don't know, but... Wait, there's something. This came from the other side of the street. I followed the voice and saw the sigil-etched outline of Madding Scrivener. She stood looking up at the building nearby, holding a sheet of paper in her hands. A series of individual sigils had been drawn at the corners, with three rows of god words in the middle. As I watched, one of the god words and a sigil in the upper right-hand corner began to glow more brightly. The Scrivener, who apparently knew what this meant, gasped and took several steps back. I could not see her face, for she had no god words written there, but terror filled her voice. Oh, gods, I knew it. Look out, all of you, look! And suddenly hells filled the street. No, not hells. Holes. With a sound like tearing paper, they opened all around us, perfect circles of darkness. Some lay along the ground, some on the walls, some must have hung unsupported in mid-air. One of them opened right beneath the Scrivener's feet, practically the instant the last word left her lips. She didn't have time to cry out before she fell into it and vanished. Another caught Keeter, who had turned to run to Madding's side. It opened before her between one step and another, and she was gone. The racing dog cursed in Makatish and darted around the first hole that opened at his feet, but then another opened above him. I saw his short fur stand on end, pulled upward, and then with a yelp, he was sucked in as well. Before I could react, Madding suddenly shoved me away from him into the doorway of the house. Stumbling over the doorway's raised step, I turned back, opening my mouth to speak, then saw the hole opening at his back. I felt the pull, its force powerful enough to jerk me forward a step even after I stopped. No! I caught the door's elaborate handle in one hand to brace myself and used that leverage to raise my walking stick, hoping Madding would be able to grab it. Matting, his eyes wide and teeth bared, strained toward me. The sound of jangling chimes was barely audible, sucked away by the hole. He mouthed something I couldn't hear. He ground his teeth and I heard him in my head this time, in the manner of gods. Get inside! Then he flew backward, as if a great invisible hand had grabbed him around the waist and yanked. The hole vanished. He was gone. I fumbled with the door handle, my breath wild and loud in my ears, my palms so sweaty that the stick slipped loose to clatter on the ground. I could hear no one else on the street. I was alone, except for the remaining holes which hovered all around me, darker than the black of my sight. Then I got the door open and ran into the house, away from the holes, toward the clean, empty darkness where I was blind, but where at least I knew what dangers I faced. I got three steps into the house before the air tore behind me. 
and I flew backward off my feet, and a sound like trembling metal filled the world as I tumbled away. 7. Girl in Darkness Watercolor My dreams have been more vivid lately. They told me that might happen, but still, I remembered something. In the dream, I paint a picture. But as I lose myself in the colors of the sky and the mountains and the mushrooms that dwarf the mountains, this is a living world, full of strange flora and fungi, I can almost smell the fumes of its alien air. The door to my room opens and my mother comes in. What are you doing? she asks. And though I am still half lost in mountains and mushrooms, I have no choice but to pull myself back into this world, where I am just a sheltered blind girl whose mother wants what's best for me, even if she and I do not agree on what that is. Painting, I say, though this is obvious. My belly has clenched in defensive tension. I fear a lecture coming. She only sighs and comes closer, putting her hand on mine to let me know where she is. She is silent for a long while. Is she looking at the painting? I nibble my bottom lip, not quite daring to hope that she is, perhaps trying to understand why I do what I do. She has never told me to stop, but I can taste her disapproval, as sour and heavy on my tongue as old, molding grapes. She has hinted at it verbally as well, in the past. Paint something useful, something pretty. Something that does not entrance viewers for hours on end. Something that would not attract the sharp, gleaming interest of the priests if they saw it. Something safe. She says nothing this time, only stroking my braided hair, and at last I realize she is not thinking about me or my painting at all. What is it, Mama? I ask. Nothing, she says, very softly, and I realize that for the first time in my life, she has just lied to me. My heart fills with dread. I don't know why. Perhaps it is the whiff of fear that wafts from her, or the sorrow that underlies it, or simply the fact that my garrulous, cheerful mother is suddenly so quiet, so still. So I lean against her and put my arms around her waist. She is trembling, unable to give me the comfort that I crave. I take what I can and perhaps give a little of my own in return. My father died a few weeks later. I floated in numbing emptiness, screaming, unable to hear myself. When I clasped my hands together, I felt nothing, even when I dug in my nails. Opening my mouth, I sucked in another breath to scream again, but felt no sensation of air moving over my tongue or filling my lungs. I knew that I did it. I willed my muscles to move and believed that they responded, but I could feel nothing. Nothing but the terrible cold. It was bitter enough to be painful, or would have been if I could feel pain. If I had been able to stand, I might have fallen to the ground, too cold to do anything but shiver, if only there had been ground. The mortal mind is not built for such things. I did not miss sight, but touch, sound, smell. I was used to those. I needed those. Was this how other people felt about blindness? No wonder they feared it so. I contemplated going mad. Re-child, says my father, taking my hands. 
Don't rely on your magic. I know the temptation will be there. It's good to see, isn't it? I nod. He smiles. But the power comes from inside you, he goes on. He opens up one of my small hands and traces the whirling print of one fingertip. It tickles, and I laugh. If you use a lot of it, you'll get tired. If you use it all, free child, you could die. I frown in puzzlement. It's just magic. Magic is light, color. Magic is a beautiful song, wonderful, but not a necessity of life. Not like food or water or sleep or blood. Yes, but it's also part of you, an important part. He smiles, and for the first time, I see how deeply the sadness has permeated him today. He seems lonely. You have to understand, we're not like other people. I cried out with my voice and my thoughts. Gods can hear the latter if a mortal concentrates hard enough. It's how they hear prayers. But there was no reply from Matting or anyone else. Though I groped around, my hands encountered nothing. Even if he'd been there, right beside me, would I have known? I had no idea. I was so afraid. Feel, says my father, guiding my hand. I hold a fat horsehair brush tipped with paint that stinks like vinegar. Taste the scent on the air. Listen to the scrape of the brush. Then believe. Believe what? What you expect to happen. What you want to exist. If you don't control it, it will control you, Rechild. Never forget that. I should have stayed in the house. I should have left the city. I should have seen the Previt coming. I should have left Shiny in the muck where I found him. I should have stayed in Nemoro and never left. The paint is a door, my father says. I put out my hands and imagined that they shook. A door? I ask. Yes. The power is in you, hidden, but the paint opens the way to that power, allowing you to bring some of it out onto the canvas, or anywhere else where you want to put it. As you grow older... You'll find new ways to open the door. Painting is just the first method you've found. Oh, I consider this. Does that mean I could sing my magic like you? Maybe. Do you like singing? Not like I like painting. And my voice doesn't sound good like yours. He chuckles. I like your voice. You'll like everything I do, Papa. <laughs> But my thoughts are turning, fascinated with the idea. Does that mean I can do something besides make paintings? Like... My child's imagination cannot fathom the possibilities of magic. There are no godlings in the world yet to show us what it can do. Like turn a bunny into a bee or make flowers bloom? He is silent for a moment, and I sense his reluctance. He has never lied to me. Not even when I ask questions he would rather not answer. I don't know, he says at last. Sometimes when I sing, if I believe something will happen, it happens. And sometimes... He hesitates, abruptly looks uneasy. Sometimes when I don't sing, it happens too. The song is the door, but belief is the key that unlocks it. I touch his face, trying to understand his discomfort. What is it, Papa? He catches my hand and kisses it and smiles. 
but I have already felt it. He is just a little afraid. Well, just think. What if you took a man and believed he was a rock, something alive that you believed was something dead? I try to think about this, but I am too young. It sounds fun to me. He sighs and smiles and pats my hand. I put out my hands, closed my eyes, and believed a world into being. My hands ached to feel, and so I imagined thick, loamy soil. My feet ached to stand, so I put that soil under them, solid, hollow-sounding when I stumped because of the air and life teeming within it. My lungs ached to breathe, and I inhaled air that was slightly cool, moist with dew. I breathed out, and the warmth of my breath made vapor in the air. I could not see that, but I believed it was there, just as I knew there would be light around me, as my mother had once described, misty morning light from a pale early spring sun. The darkness lingered, resistant. Sun, sun, sun. Warmth danced along my skin, driving away the aching cold. I sat back on my knees, drawing deep breaths and smelling fresh turned dirt and feeling the glaze of light against my closed eyelids. I needed to hear something, so I decided there would be wind, a light morning breeze, gradually dispelling the fog. When the breeze came, stirring my hair to tickle my neck, I did not let myself feel amazement. That would lead to doubt. I could feel the fragility of the place around me, its inclination to be something else, cold, endless dark. No, I said quickly, and was pleased to hear my own voice. There was air now to carry it. Warm spring air. A garden ready to be planted. Stay here. The world stayed, so I opened my eyes. I could see. And strangely, the scene around me was familiar. I sat in the terrace garden of my home village, where I had almost always been completely blind. Not much magic in Nemoro. The only time I had ever seen the village had been the day my father died, the day of the Grey Lady's birth. I had seen everything then. I had recreated that day now, falling back on the memory of that single magic-infused glimpse. Silvery mid-morning mists shivered in the air. I remembered that the big boxy shape on the other side of the garden was a house, though I could not tell if it was mine or the neighbor's without smelling it or counting my steps. Prickly things near my feet danced in the breeze. Grass. I had rebuilt everything. Except people. I got to my feet, listening. In all my years in the village, I had never heard it so silent at this time of day. There were always small noises, birds, backyard goats, somebody's newborn fussing. Here there was nothing. Like ripples in water, I felt the space around me tremble. It's home, I whispered. It's home, just early. Nobody else is up yet. It's real. The ripples ceased. Real, yet terribly fragile. I was still in the dark place. All I'd done was create a sphere of sanity around myself, like a bubble. I would have to continue affirming its reality, believing in it to keep it intact. Trembling, I dropped to my knees again, pushing my fingers into the moist soil. Yes, that was better. 
Concentrate on the small things, the mundanities. I lifted a handful of earth to my nose and inhaled. My eyes could not be trusted, but the rest? Yes, that I could do. But I was tired suddenly, more tired than I should have been. As I squeezed the clod of dirt, I found my head nodding, my eyelids heavy. I hadn't slept much, but that did not account for this. I was in a strange place, scared out of my mind. Fear alone should have had me too tense to sleep. Before I could fathom this new mystery, there was another of those curious rippling shivers, and then agony sizzled behind my eyes. I cried out, arching backward and clapping dirty hands to my face, my concentration broken. Even as I screamed, I felt the false Nemoro bubble shatter around me, spinning away into nothingness as the sickening, empty dark rushed in. And then... I landed on my side on a solid surface, hard enough that the breath was jarred from my body. Well, here you are, said a cool male voice, familiar, but I could not think. Hands touched me, turning me over and pushing my hair from my face. I tried to jerk away, but that jarred the ratcheting agony in my eyes, my head. I was too tired to scream. Is she all right? That was a woman's voice, somewhere beyond the man. I'm not certain. The words felt like God words, slapping my ears. I clapped my hands over my ears and moaned, wishing they would all just be silent. This isn't the usual disorientation. Hmm, no. I think it's some effect of her own magic. She used it to protect herself from my power. Fascinating. He turned away from me. I felt his smugness like a scrim of filth along my skin. Your proof. Indeed. She sounded pleased as well. At that point, I passed out. 8. Light Reveals Encaustic on Canvas I awoke slowly and in some pain. I was lying down. Heavy blankets covered me, soft linen and scratchy wool. I listened for a while, breathing, assessing, I was in a smallish room. My breath sounded close, though not claustrophobically so. It smelled of spent candle wax, dust, me, and the world tree. The lattermost scent was very strong, stronger than I'd ever known the tree to smell. The air was laden with its distinctive wood resins and the bright, sharp green scent of its foliage. The tree did not lose its leaves in autumn, a fact for which we in the city below were deeply grateful but it did shed damaged leaves whenever they occurred, and it replaced those just before the spring flowering. It tended to smell more strongly during that time, but for the scent to be this strong, I had to be closer than usual. That was not the only unusual thing. I sat up slowly, wincing as I discovered that my whole left arm was sore. I examined it and found fresh bruises there, and also on my hip and ankle. My throat was so scratchy that it hurt when I tried to clear it, and my head ached dully in a single area, from the middle of my scalp right down into my head and forward to press against my eyes. Then I remembered. The empty place. My false Nemoro. Shattering, falling voices. Madding. Where the hells was I? The room was cool, though I could feel watery sunlight coming from my left. 
I shivered a little as I got out of the warm blankets, though I was wearing clothing, a simple sleeveless shift, loose drawstring pants, comfortable if not the best fit. There were slippers beside the cot, which I avoided for the moment, easier to feel the floor if I left my feet bare. I explored the room and discovered that I had been imprisoned. As prisons went, it was nice. The cot had been soft and comfortable. The small table and chairs were well made, and there were thick rugs covering much of the wooden floor. A tiny room off the main one contained a toilet and a sink. Yet the door I found was solidly locked, and there was no keyhole on my side. The windows were unbarred but sealed shut. The glass was thick and heavy, and I would not be able to break through it easily, and certainly not without making a great deal of noise. And the air felt strange, not as humid as I was used to, thinner somehow. Sounds did not carry as well. I clapped experimentally, but the echoes came back all wrong. I jumped when the door's lock turned, right on the heels of my thought. I was by the windows, so their solidity was suddenly comforting to me as I backed against them. Oh, you're awake at last, said a male voice I had never heard before. Conveniently, when I come to check on you myself, rather than sending an initiate. Hello. Cinemite, but no city accent I was familiar with. In fact, he sounded like someone rich, his every enunciation precise, his language formal. I couldn't tell more than that, since I didn't talk to many rich people. Hello, I said, or tried to say. My abused throat, from screaming in the empty place, I remembered now, let out a rusty squeak and it hurt badly enough that I grimaced. Perhaps you shouldn't talk. The door closed behind him. Someone outside locked it. I jumped again at the sound of the latch. Please, Erushoth, I mean you no harm. I imagine I can guess most of your questions, so if you'll sit down, I'll explain things. Erushoth? It had been so long since I'd heard the honorific that for that moment I didn't recognize it. A morrow term of respect for a young woman. I was a bit old for it. Generally, it was used for girls under twenty. But that was all right. Maybe he meant to flatter me. He didn't sound morrow, however. He waited where he was, patiently, until I finally moved to sit down on one of the chairs. That's better, he said, moving past me. Measured steps, solid but graceful. A large man, though not as large as shiny. Old enough to know his body. He smelled of paper and fine cloth and a bit of leather. Now, my name is Hado. I'm responsible for all new arrivals here, which for the moment consists solely of you and your friends. Here, if you're wondering, is the House of the Risen Sun. Have you heard of it? I frowned. The newly risen sun was one of the symbols of the Bright Father, but was little used these days, since it was easily confused with the dawning sun of the Grey Lady. I had not heard anyone refer to the risen sun since my childhood, back in Nemoro. Whitehall, I rasped. No, not exactly, though our purpose is also votive, and we too honor the Bright Lord, though not in the same manner as the Order of Etempes. Perhaps you've heard the term used for our members instead. We are known as the New Lights. That one I did know, but it made even less sense. What did a heretic cult want with me? Haddo had said he could guess my questions, 
But if he guessed that one, he chose not to address it. You and your friends are to be our guests, Erushoth. May I call you Ori? Guest. Hells. I set my jaw, waiting for him to get the point. He seemed amused by my silence, shifting to lean against the table. Indeed, we have decided to welcome you among us as one of our initiates, our term for a new member. You'll be introduced to our doctrines, our customs, our whole way of life. Nothing will be hidden from you. Indeed, it is our hope that you will find enlightenment with us and rise within our ranks as a true believer. This time I turned my face toward him. I had learned that doing this drove the point home for seeing people. No. He let out a gentle, untroubled sigh. It may take you some time to get used to the idea, of course. No! I clenched my fists in my lap and forced the words out, despite the agony of speaking. Where are my friends? There was a pause. The mortals who were brought here with you are also being inducted into our organization. Not the godlings, of course. I swallowed, both to wet my throat and to push down a sudden queasy fear in my belly. There was no way they had managed to bring Madding and his siblings here against their will. No way. What about the godlings? Another of those telling, damning pauses. Their fate is for our leaders to decide. I tried to figure out whether he was lying. These were godlings I was worrying about, not mortals. I had never heard of mortal magic that could hold a godling prisoner. But Madding had not come for me, and that meant he could not, for some reason. I had heard of godlings using mortals as cover for their own machinations. Perhaps that was what was happening here. Some rival of Madding's moving to take over the god's blood trade, or perhaps another godling had taken the commission that Lady Nemer had declined. If either were true, though... Wouldn't only Madding have been targeted and not his whole crew? Just then, there was a strange movement beneath my feet, like a shiver of the floor. It rippled through the walls, not so much audible as palpable. It was as if the whole room had taken a momentary chill. One of the thick windows even rattled faintly in its frame before going still. Where are we? I rasped. The house is attached to the trunk of the world tree. The tree sways slightly now and again. Nothing to be concerned about. Dearest gods. I'd heard rumors that some of the wealthiest folk in the city, heads of merchant cartels, nobility and the like, had begun to build homes onto the tree's trunk. It cost a fortune, in part because the Aramary had laid down strict requirements for aesthetics, safety, and the health of the tree and in part because no one with the gall to build onto the tree would bother building a small house. That a group of heretics could command such resources was incredible. That they had the power to capture and hold half a dozen godlings against their will was impossible. These aren't ordinary people, I realized with a chill. This is more than money. It's power, too. Magical, political, everything. The only people in the world with that kind of power were Aramary. Now, I see that you're still not feeling well. Not well enough to carry on a conversation anyhow. Haddo straightened, coming over to me. I flinched when I felt his fingers touch my left temple, where I was surprised to realize I had another bruise. Better, he said. But I think I'll recommend that you be given another day to rest.
I'll have someone bring you dinner here, then take you to the baths. When you've healed more, the Nypri would like to examine you. Yes, I remembered now. After my false Nemoro had shattered, I had been brought out of the empty place somehow. I had fallen to the floor, hard. The ache in my eyes, though, that was more familiar. I had felt the same at Madding's after I'd used magic to kill the order keepers at the park. Then I registered what Hato had said. Nypri? It sounded like some sort of title. Your leader? One of our leaders, yes. His role is more specific, however. He's an expert Scrivener, and he's very interested in your unique magical abilities. Most likely he'll request a demonstration. The blood drained out of my face. They knew about my magic. How? It did not matter. They knew. Don't want to, I said. My voice was very small, not just because of the soreness. Haddo's hand was still on my temple. He moved it down and patted my cheek, twice, in a patronizing sort of way. Both slaps were just a little too hard to be comforting, and then his hand lingered on me, an implicit warning. Don't be foolish, he said very softly. You are a good Maronite girl, aren't you? We are all true Tempens here, Ori. Why wouldn't you want to join us? The Aramary had ruled the world for thousands of years. In that time, they had imposed the bright on every continent, every kingdom, every race. Those who'd worshipped other gods were given a simple command, convert. Those who disobeyed were annihilated, their names and works forgotten. Truri Tempest believed in one way, their way. How like Shiny, a small, bitter voice whispered in me before I forced it silent. Hado chuckled again, but this time he stroked my cheek approvingly at my silence. It still stung. You'll do well here, I see, he said. With that, he went to the door and knocked. Someone let him out and locked the door again behind him. I sat where I was for a long while after, with my hand on my cheek. Wordless people entered my room twice the next day, bringing me a light almond-style breakfast and soup for lunch. I spoke to the second one, my voice was better, asking where Madding and the others were. The person did not answer. No one else appeared in the interim, so I listened at the door a while, trying to determine whether there were guards outside and whether there was any pattern to the movement I could hear in the halls beyond. My chances of escaping, alone, from a house full of fanatics without even a stick to help me find my way, were slim, but that was no reason not to try. I was fiddling with the thick glass window when the door opened behind me and someone small came in. I straightened without guilt. They weren't stupid. They expected me to try and escape, at least for the first few days or so. True Etempins were nothing if not rational. My name is John, said a young woman, surprising me by speaking. She sounded younger than me, maybe in her teens. There was something about her voice that suggested innocence, or maybe enthusiasm. You are Ree? Yes, I said. She had not given a family name, I noticed. Neither had Hado the night before. So neither did I. A small, safe battle. I'm pleased to meet you. My throat felt better, thank the gods. She seemed pleased by my attempt at politeness. The master of initiates, Master Hado, whom you met, says I'm to give you anything you need, she said. I can take you to the bath now, and I've brought some fresh clothing. There was the faint pluff of a pile of cloth being deposited. 
Nothing fancy, I'm afraid. We live simply here. I see, I said. You're an initiate, too? Yes. She came closer, and I guessed that she was staring at my eyes. Was that a guess, or did you sense it somehow? I've heard that blind people can pick up on things normal people can't. I tried not to sigh. It was a guess. Oh. She sounded disappointed, but recovered quickly. You're feeling better today, I see. You slept for two whole days after they brought you out of the empty. Two days? But something else caught my attention. The empty? The place our nipery sends the worst blasphemers against the bright, Jaunt said. She had dropped her voice, her tone full of dread. Is it as terrible as they say? You mean that place beyond the holes? I remembered being unable to breathe, unable to scream. It was terrible, I said softly. Then it's fortunate the nipery was merciful. What did you do? Do? To cause him to put you there. At this, fury lanced down my spine. I did nothing. I was with my friends when this nipery of yours attacked us. I was kidnapped and brought here against my will. And my friends... I almost choked as I realized. For all I know, they're still in that awful place. To my surprise, Jaunt made a compassionate sound and patted my hand. It's all right. If they aren't blasphemers, he'll bring them out before too much harm is done. Now, shall we go to the baths? Jaunt took my arm to lead me while I shuffled along, moving slowly since I had no walking stick to help me gauge floor obstacles. Meanwhile, I mulled over the tidbits of information Jaunt had tossed at my feet. They might call their new members initiates instead of order keepers, and they might use strange magic, but in every other way, these new lights seemed much like the Order of Etempus, right down to the same high-handed ways. Which made me wonder why the Order hadn't yet broken them up. It was one thing to permit the worship of godlings. There was a certain pragmatism in that. But another faith dedicated to Brighty Tempest? That was messy. Confusing to the lay folk. What if the lights began to build their own white halls, collect their own offerings, deploy their own order keepers? That would violate every tenet of the bright. The light's very existence invited chaos. What made even less sense was that the Aramari allowed it. Their clan's founder, Shahar Aramari, had once been his most favorite priestess. The order was their mouthpiece. I could not see how it benefited them to allow a rival voice to exist. Then a thought. Maybe the Aramari don't know. I was distracted from this when we entered an open room filled with warm humidity and the sound of water. The bath chamber. Do you wash first? John asked. She guided me to a washing area. I could smell the soap. I don't know anything about Mauro customs. Not very different from Amen, I said, wondering why she cared. I explored and found a shelf bearing soap, fresh sponges, and a wide bowl of steaming water. Hot. A treat. I pulled off my clothes and draped them over the rack I found along the shelf's edge, then sat down to scrub myself. We're cinnamite, too, after all. Since the Night Lord destroyed the Marrowland, she said, and then gasped, Oh, darkness, I'm sorry. Why, I shrugged, putting down the sponge. Mentioning it won't make it happen again. I found a flask beside it, which I opened and sniffed. Shampoo. Astringent, not ideal for Morona hair, but it would have to do. Well, yes, but... 
to remind you of such a horror. It happened to my ancestors, not to me. I don't forget. We never forget. But there's more to the Morone than some long-ago tragedy. I rinsed myself with the bowl inside, turning to her. Which way is the soak? She took my hand again and led me to a huge wooden tub. The bottom was metal, heated by a fire underneath. I had to use steps built into the side to climb in. The water was cooler than I liked and unscented, though at least it smelled clean. Matting's pools had always been just right. Enough of that, I told myself sharply as my eyes stung with the warning of tears. You can't do him any good if you don't figure out how to get out of here. Jaunt came with me, leaning against the side of the tub. I wished she would go away, but I suppose part of her role was to act as my guard as well as my guide. The Marona have always honored Tempest first among the three, just like we Amen, she said. You don't worship any of the lesser gods, isn't that right?